Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted where I felt adventures pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I can sit across the table from, uh, you know, a neo-Nazi, whether he's wearing khakis and a polo or has swastika tattoos on his face, and I can let all the ideological talk just kind of fly by me. It doesn't bother me. Uh, and maybe that's because I used to say it. Sometimes it means sitting with my fists in a ball, you know, under the table and, and being really angry internally. But what I do is I introduce them to the people that they think that they hate. I can tell you that every single time I've done that, I've never had a bad experience and everybody's always walked away different. Christian Picciolini has a remarkable story. It's a story that helps the rest of us understand what leads an ordinary person to take on a life of hate and violence. He knows because he was once a leading organizer for the neo-Nazi movement. But more than that, he knows what it takes to help people in that movement to leave their hate behind and take on new lives as in the title of a recent film about him, he knows how to break hate. Christian, I'm so glad you can be on with me. I, when I saw your show on MSNBC, Breaking Hate, I was, I was so moved by it that I, I thought I got to have him on if, if he's at all free. Alan, I, I have to tell you, I am so grateful and honored to be here. Uh, you know, you've, you've been somebody who's been an inspiration my whole life wow. from afar. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, now you're my inspiration. <laughs> well, thank you. We can be each other's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really amazing. The way, you know, just so we know where it started, hmm. anybody who doesn't know your story, but by, by now an awful lot of people know your story, but you got involved. On in one moment mm. in an alley, yeah, right, with the neo-Nazi movement. I did. What What happened that night? Gosh, well, I was uh, 14 years old. It was 1987. Nobody in America really knew what a skinhead was. I didn't know what a neo-Nazi skinhead was. Um, and I, you know, I, I'd come from a really great family, uh, Italian family, who were immigrants in the 60s, and and you know, they loved me. But because they were immigrants, they had to work seven days a week, sometimes 14 hours a day. So I really didn't have a connection with my parents. I mean, we loved each other and, uh, you know, we saw each other from time to time. But I didn't really have an intimate connection with because them. Because they were tending to the business all the time? Was y that it? Yeah. Well, you know, being a kid, you wonder why your parents aren't around and you wonder what you did to push them away. Yeah, right. But, yeah, they were just working, you know. Certainly looking back now, I don't blame them at all. But I'd kind of lost my way. I felt very abandoned by my parents growing up. Um, so I started acting out. And at 14, one day I was standing in an alley smoking a joint. 
And uh, a car came roaring down the alley. It was a muscle car. And this guy gets out with a shaved head and boots. And he walks up to me. And then he grabbed the joint from my mouth. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. I have to be honest, Alan, I was 14. I didn't know what the heck a communist, a Jew, or even what the word docile meant. <laughs> but, but, but other than that, it other to be than, going well. Yeah, it was perfect. No, I mean, <laughs> but I was so desperate. And I think that that is kind of the moral of the story is uh, ideology is not what is radical, you know, not what's radicalizing people today. I really think it is this broken search for identity, community, and purpose, mm-hmm. something that we all look for in our lives. And if, you know, if I was standing in an alley with a lot of potholes, but if you can think of those potholes as, you know, obstacles in our life's journey, I had hit a lot of potholes that detoured me. And So one pothole was the yeah. unfortunate situation that your parents weren't able to really tend to you. Sure. And they didn't know because I wasn't vulnerable. You know, I wasn't telling them what was happening. Yeah. yeah. So as those potholes um, pile up. Yeah. It's hard to get down the road without falling into them and yeah. losing your structure or getting lost. Yeah, and you, you found it. You, it's interesting. I want to talk to Father Boyle, who, mm. oh, who yeah. gets kids out of gangs. Yeah, he didn't feel it was a question of finding a family. Hmm. He thought it was that they were ready to have a kind of living death. That they they had they had no other life and they might as well yeah. disappear this way. That's that's interesting. And I think that there are some people that are so desperate that in order to feel better about themselves, they have to make somebody feel worse than they do. Mm. So that, you know, they can enjoy some semblance of, of happiness, even though that's completely misguided. Uh, so I think that that is accurate for a certain, uh, you know, percentage of, of the population that might go to gangs or towards extremism or a mm-hmm. cult or whatever the case may be. But um, the difference here is that once you join it, you get a philosophy to go with it. Well, it builds you up, right? It's false, but it, it did give me a sense of identity. I knew who I was at that point. Mm. I knew what my family was after having felt for 14 years that I didn't have one. Uh, and my purpose, you know, it was told, it, I was told what my purpose was and it, and it became a part of me. Which was what? Which was to prevent the white race from being killed off the face of the earth. And it was this whole notion uh, of white genocide, the multiculturalism, you know, was this conspiracy to destroy the white race. And that's what so, I So they, they, they go from not just being asked to not have absolute power over everybody else, but from feeling if they don't have absolute power, there, there's there, then that equals genocide. Mm. You know, sometimes equal rights uh, to the dominant class feels like oppression because mm. something's being taken away. You know, I, I really think that they use these narratives of fear. Um, you know, all, through the centuries, I think extremists or autocrats have done this. You know, it's always about playing on some very real grievances that people might have. To inject fear to make those grievances out of control so they make absolutely no sense and have no semblance in logic. So what they're saying is, well, our country's being taken away mm. or, our, you know, uh, black on white crime is, is higher. And these are all false statistics that they've made up. Uh, so, you know, to a, a large percent of the, percentage of the population who's not willing to do the work and, and look and, and might be isolated or ignorant, uh, they take that as truth. And unfortunately, there are a lot of news 
outlets that are are pushing this inf- this misinformation as truth. But you had a one-on-one experience with this guy in yeah. the alley, and if I remember right, mm-hmm. was he the originator of this movement? He was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead leader. The group that I joined uh, was America's first skinhead neo-Nazi skinhead group, and it had started in Chicago. A lot of people don't know that. So he he and the, his. Um his uh, assistants. His minions, right? Yeah. (laughs) They indoctrinated you into this hate philosophy, but then there was... Not at first, though. What did... Ah, interesting. What did they do? It was about boosting my pride. You know, Mm -hmm. it didn't start out with telling me to hate people. There wasn't even hateful language at first. It was about... You know, after he pulled that joint from my mouth, Alan, he put his hand on my shoulder and he asked me what my name was. And I told him my name, Christian Piccellini. And he said, ah, fine Italian name. Your ancestors are great warriors and thinkers and artists and, you know, have dominated civilization. Because he knew after just talking for a few minutes that that was the only thing that I knew anything about because I had grown up in this Italian bubble, you know, Mm -hmm. in in a part of Chicago where everybody in my neighborhood was from the same village in Italy. Mm. Uh, And uh, it was, you know, a bubble. And he knew that that's what was important to me. Um, And uh, he used that that small little piece of my identity and boosted it up. And then he would switch it over and say, well, you know, there's somebody who wants to take that away from you. And that's when the hate started. You know, the period from, you know, roughly 15 and a half or 16 until I was 20, I was pretty, I was a pretty violent person. Um, but, and I hurt a lot of people. Uh, I've tried to make amends for that, but I, you know, I certainly don't know everybody who I've hurt. Um, but I can tell you that every time I did hurt somebody, um, and I thank my parents for this, I had regret every time and shame but I continued to do it because staying a part of it and having that family and that identity it was the only thing I knew since I was 14 you remind me in that wonderful TED talk you gave thank you was so from the heart thank you and there was a moment that I remember almost as if I were there to see it when you describe beating up a kid, mm, yeah. a black kid, I think, yeah. and you caught a look in his eye. Yeah, I connected with him for just a moment as I was hurting him. And uh, What did that do to you? Well, first, it, it, I think it made me realize that, you know, it could have been somebody that I know. Could it have been my brother? Could have been my father or, you know, somebody that I loved? And... And knowing that I wasn't just hurting him, but I was hurting them mm-hmm. too. And I don't know what it was. I mean, I really still to this day don't know why that one instance uh, affected me, unlike the other ones. It, this one really was was very visceral. Um, and I still remember his eyes. I still remember looking into them and, and, and asking, having a conversation internally while I was hurting him, thinking that... Uh, you know, this wasn't something I wanted to do. That seems to me to be so important, the moment of human, human-to-human contact. This is a person like me and like my relatives and friends, yeah. people who I wouldn't want to be hurt. It's just hurting him is like hurting them. Yeah, it was, uh, that was the last time I committed an act of violence. Um, 
and you know, from that moment on, I was still the tough guy, but I, you know, I would uh, make excuses to not go to a fight or, and, and I was the leader of this group at the time. Um, it was very difficult to have this internal struggle uh, to understand who I was wanting to leave, but not being brave enough to do that because I was scared to leave it all behind and start over. Was there any other influence on you besides the look in that kid's eye? Where, from, yeah. Where, where did it come from? There were, you know, I had doubts every day. I, you know, again, thank you, mom and dad, for that. Um, but I opened in 95 a record store. Uh, I'd gotten married uh, in 92 and uh, at 19, and we had two kids. And she was not a part of what I was a part of. She was, you know, quote, unquote, normal. And uh, she always encouraged me to leave. And the only way I know how to do that was to distance myself without leaving. So I told uh, my crew, and I was leading about 100 people at the time, that I wanted to step back um, and not leave, but just take a break. So I opened a record store, and the goal was to sell racist music that I was importing from Europe. And... Uh, it was 75% of my revenue, and this was before the internet. People were driving from across the country to buy this stuff. And um, I had to stock other music so that the city wouldn't shut me down, because if they knew I was a, a racist record store, uh, you know, they would take my license. So I started to sell hip-hop and punk rock music and heavy metal music. Mm. And I never expected to have any customers for that, because everybody knew who I was. But they started to come in, and these people were African American, and they were gay, and uh, and they were buying records from, from me. this guy on yeah. the other side of the counter with a skinhead. Yeah, with a you know Confederate flag T-shirt on or something, you know. Really, and did they offensive. look at you funny or start a conversation about it or what? Well, you know, they could have broken my windows, they could have punched me in the nose, but instead they spoke to me and they listened more than anything else. They listened to me because once I started to talk myself out of the bravado, mm. it's my, <laughs> I started to be real with them. And then over time, um, you know, it was really their compassion uh, mm. and the empathy for me that they showed me when I least deserved it. Uh, and frankly, they were the people that I least deserved it from. That really was the most powerful uh, transformative experience for me because you know, I always say that hatred is born of ignorance, fear is its father, and isolation is its mother. I hadn't, I'd been afraid of these people, and I'd hated them because I'd never met them. I'd never in my life had a meaningful conversation uh, or interaction with them. But when I did, I recognized that we were more similar than we were different, and that the differences were the beautiful things, the language, the food, mm -hmm. the music, mm -hmm. culture, all the things that I, you know, always loved and still love today. Maybe not for those eight years, but um, it was really their ability to, to filter out the noise of what I was saying and listen to the words that helped them recognize that I was lonely, that uh, I felt I was capable, but didn't feel respected. And all those things, and the abandonment, obviously, but all those things kind of pushed me to a place where the only people that would accept me were these bad guys. When you were thinking of leaving? Scariest thing I've ever done. I, that's what I want to know. Was it? Did you feel that you were in physical danger? I did. Uh, I, was a, I was a leader, so, it, you know, Locally, I was a selfish leader, so it kind of imploded when I left, and I think I was lucky about that. What so do you mean a selfish leader? I, was, I didn't train anybody 
to take over when I left. Huh. So there was no heir apparent. There was a lot of uh, disorganization and, and people kind of went their own ways. So locally, I didn't have a, a threat of, uh, you know, violence against me, uh, which is why I've managed to stay in Chicago, I think, for my whole life. Um, but They're not still mad at you for oh, now you're out talking are. and making videos and uh, I get death threats every day. Holy moly. Yeah. So yeah. how do you uh, how do you deal with that? I filter out the noise. <laughs> you know, and I think it, it, there was one point in my life uh, from the time I was 14 until I was 22, I would have put my life on the line for something that is awful, uh, destructive, self-destructive, and frankly, a bunch of garbage. Uh, if I have to, you know, run into that fiery building today, I'm willing to do that because I'm no, I know I'm doing the right thing. Um, you know, I, I can get hit by a bus tomorrow and, uh, or I can, you know, get beat up by some skinheads and it hasn't happened yet. They talk a lot. Um, but I'm willing I, to I do. wouldn't challenge them too much. I would. Oh, I challenge them every day. They know that. <laughs> I'm their biggest challenger. I, I personally would hold it down a lot. These fine people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd go that far. But, you know, maybe uh, it's, that's funny that you say that because it's, when he first said that, I was very, very angry that he said there were very fine people on both sides. Like, you know, I think most of America was. Well, what, did you, what did you finally arrive at as a reaction? My reaction was if I believed they were all bad people— then I couldn't help them. Mm. And that at one point in my life, people could have said that about me, which I'm sure they did. Yeah. And I may not have gotten help. I may not have found that. So I have to believe there are very fine people in that crowd. That's so interesting. That's that's a, a way of looking at it that just never yeah. occurred to me. Even yeah. when I heard your idea of extending yeah. compassion to people who least deserve it, yeah. I hadn't thought of, I hadn't extended it out to that long a, a, a boardwalk. Yeah. Well, I, there is something I agree with the president on then. That's that one thing. <laughs> the idea of extending respect, compassion to somebody who least deserves it mm. is a really interesting idea. And when I heard your story... I was thinking of Sarah Silverman's story. She oh, was yeah, the first conversation great. we had on this series yeah, because her story was uh, being compassionate and kind to a person who was as rough on the internet with her as you can yeah. be with somebody. She, so I actually, I have done Sarah's show and she's great. She's become uh, you know, a bit of a friend and, and uh, she could correct me here if I'm wrong, but I I had done her show before that incident happened. Somebody, one of you know the internet trolls, was uh, you know talking really bad to her online, and rather than ignoring the person or rather than attacking back, um, she asked him how she could help, and she got him free counseling, she did. free psychological counseling. And now, did. when I went to talk to her, I interviewed her in her yeah. kitchen, <laughs> and. She said, oh, I was just uh, texting with that guy today. That's, that's amazing. I mean, months later, yeah. had it developed a relationship with somebody who, who, was, who, who made her the object of his hate. Yeah, I mean, he attacked her, and, and the normal reaction is to defend, but instead of, uh, you know, putting her fists up to defend, she kind of opened her arms. And, you know, again, she can correct me here if I'm wrong, but this was after I'd been on her show and I'd given her the advice to— So explain that advice know. to me. How do you do it? Well— it's simple, and we can all do it, and it's to find somebody that we think is undeserving of our compassion and give it to them because 
chances are really good that they're the ones who need it the most. They may not deserve it, but they need it. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You never know what somebody else is going through. And we're all going through something. You know, yeah. it could be that person you walk past on the street or, you know, somebody who doesn't open a door for you. Uh, you know, I've, I've, had, I've stopped and had those conversations with people and the things that you find out about what's happening, whether it's sickness or, you know, uh, relationship issues or things like that. I'm, it may be petty of me, but I, I have a particular uh, feeling of, uh, of, 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 of unhappiness when I open the door for somebody and they waltz through it, not even looking at me. <laughs> the funny thing is, and we do this when we teach communication, we have a, an exercise called the rant. Mm. And for two minutes, I would be yelling at you about something that I really feel truly deeply bad about. People pay money for this? Thank you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> and you listen, and then your job is to introduce me to the rest of the room, having heard not my rant, uh, but having heard what's under it. I love that. What's positive about it. And you introduce me in the most positive way based on all the things I said, but you never refer to the rant. Wow. And it is wonderful training in listening under the surface mm -hmm. to what the other person is giving you. And that's what I do, too. I, li I filter out the noise. I can't so tell When you. you're talking to a kid who's now in the neo-Nazi movement, right. you and he gives you all this stock footage about hate and right. how these people are killing us and destroying our, our country, you just let them go on and on. Well, you know, part of me thinks it's ridiculous because it's the same stuff I used to say when I was 15 years old. And, and looking back now, I, I recognize how ridiculous I sounded saying these awful things. Mm. So I think, you know, maybe having been a part of this is, is a little bit of a curse, but also a blessing because... I can sit across the table from, uh, you know, a neo-Nazi, whether he's wearing khakis and a polo or has swastika tattoos on his face, and I can let all the ideological talk just kind of fly by me. It doesn't mm -hmm. bother me. Uh, and maybe that's because I used to say it. Maybe I'm desensitized to the point. I'm not desensitized. It doesn't trigger anger Right. It doesn't you. trigger me. It, it, I'm still, you know, sensitized to it being an awful thing, but uh, it doesn't trigger me. And I can sit there and, and hear the words that are, you know, written between the lines. And I hear things about, and they don't even know they're telling me, but things about their father or their children mm -hmm. or about growing up. And they always glaze past those things. Yeah, you know, when I was young, my dad left, beat me. You know, I found him. He'd committed suicide when he was six and this and that, you know. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down because those <laughs> are the important things. Those are, yeah. those are the potholes yeah. that we need to fill. When do you ever get from listening with compassion and empathy to actually talking about the hateful words? Hmm. How do you make that transition? Well, you know, I work with people sometimes for years uh, and sometimes shorter. Um, I try not to debate them. I try not to argue with them ideologically. And sometimes it means sitting with my fists in a ball, you know, under the table <laughs> and, and being really angry internally. But what I do is as I let them come to their own decisions, I, I introduce them to the people that they think that they hate. Yeah. So I've spent hours with uh, Holocaust deniers and Holocaust survivors, uh, with Islamophobes and, and uh, you know, Muslim families or, or imams, uh, homophobes and, and LGBTQ communities. And, you know, they have to be ready to get to that point. Yeah. But when they do, I can tell you that every single time I've done that, I've never had a bad experience and everybody's always walked away different. 
When we come back from the break, Christian tells me how he's helped people escape from hate groups. Over 200 people. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Christian Picciolini. It sounds like you, you have an organization, which I don't think I, do. I was aware of. Yeah. How, how, what is it? How big is it? How is it funded? How do you, how do, you do this? <laughs> All very good questions. Uh, it's called the Free Radicals Project. It's a global uh, intervention and prevention network. So if you think of, of what I do, like AAA, the car service company, mm-hmm. people get in contact with me when they're having trouble. When they hit a pothole. When they, they hit call, a pothole. They call your That's AAA right. service. That's right. And then I will contact the local tow truck to go help them. (laughs) And it really is about setting up these community groups um, that, again, they don't have to be ideological. Sometimes they're psychologists, sometimes they're faith leaders, sometimes they're uh, job trainers or educators. And it's really about them surrounding this person and and finding how they can fill the potholes and building resilience. Uh, I've never met uh, a happy white supremacist. I've never met a happy terrorist. Uh, they're all miserable. And uh, that's part of why they're there, because misery loves company. So you work on them one person at a time. Mm. In Charlottesville, mm-hmm. there they were. It looked like hundreds of them. Yeah, about four or 500. And that seemed like a group that needed to be dealt with is one person at a time the only way to do it. I don't know how else you can do it with what you describe as your method. Yeah, no. I I mean, I may be the only person on earth who cannot wait to put myself out of a job. Um, But what I do is something that anybody can do. I mean, I'm not a rocket scientist. I I may have a different experience and a different, um, you know, now I have two perspectives. One from when I was involved 23 years ago and one for the rest of my life. And that gives me an edge in working with people. But what I do is nothing uh, that anybody can't do. They can be compassionate cautiously. They can, uh, you know, show empathy to people that maybe they don't think deserve it. Um, 
just having these conversations like Sarah did change that person's life. Mm -hmm. And anybody can do that. Uh, But I also want to be clear, having empathy and compassion does not mean enabling their ideology. It does not mean agreeing with their ideology. In my opinion, the way I define empathy, having empathy doesn't mean you have compassion. Yeah. It's just being aware of what they're going through. That's right. Or what their point of view is. That's right. And that can promote compassion if you are inclined to be compassionate. That is or true. Or you can use use their the empathy you have against them. You understand what they're going through. The way the guy did that yep. night in the alley. Yeah. He was he knew what you felt mm-hmm. and he was skilled at using it against you and turning That's you exactly. into one of his followers. That's exactly it. He manipulated a vulnerable person and he understood what you know, he had empathy for me because he was able to put himself in my shoes right. and understand what I was going through. Uh, but then he manipulated me, uh, knowing that I was vulnerable. And, and uh, far from compassion, if he was really compassionate toward you, he wouldn't be using you the way he that's did. That's right. Well, that was the trick, right? I mean, had he been mean to me like all the other bullies had growing up, well, that would have just been, you know, business as usual. He knew how to toe the line to walk right up to it, but not cross over. So when he pulled that joint and he smacked me and he said what he did, he was just waking me up so and, and setting me up so that he could come in and smooth it over. Mm-hmm. It was a technique that he was using. Um, yeah, you know, I think one of the issues that, you know, I get asked all the time, like, how, how do we help these kids? Well, first of all, the pre-radicalization process starts from the day we're born. It doesn't, it didn't happen to me at 14 years old. I didn't just, you know, wake up that morning and say, I'm going to be a Nazi. It had been building for a long time, not the ideological stuff, but the anger, the frustration, the marginalization. And I could have gone and, and become a drug addict. I could have gone and joined a cult. Had a group of ballerinas been across the street, I would have been the greatest ballet dancer on earth. You do not <laughs> want to see me dance, though. I did not go that way. Um, it was it was what came in front of my path at the time, and it was, mm. you know, it was so uh, seductive to me, not because of anything else but belonging, that I jumped at it. Sounds like the recruiting process is similar to your disengagement process, which is one-on-one. Very astute. I'm still a recruiter. I'm still looking for vulnerable people, mm-hmm. uh, except now I'm, I'm not trying to drag them into my misery. I'm trying to help fill their potholes so they can get back on the road and go to where they're supposed to. How many people have you worked with? I have worked with about 300. I've helped over 200 people disengage. And are the other hundred people you're still working with, or did you yeah. just uh, let them go? No, I never let anybody go. Uh, uh, sometimes they let go of me, uh, and I don't, I don't know how to get a hold of them. Uh, that's pretty rare, uh, but some people are, I'm still working with, and actually some people from the Charlottesville rally, some of some of the figureheads of that rally who were. Um, who were pretty involved in, in making it happen, uh, I'm actually working with. Once that happened, that even was a sign to them that they didn't want to be involved, that they had taken it too far. People who were organizers? Of this, so yeah. that sounds yeah. like a critical group of people. Yeah. You know, it, for me, I really, I try to see the, the broken child in everybody and not the monster. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, whether that person's six or 60, there's still a broken child in them. Uh, I wouldn't shame my child. I wouldn't hit my child. I wouldn't disown my child or, you know, scream at them in, in public. Um, I'm not willing to do that to human beings anymore either. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I've learned how to do this just through experience, and frankly, it's what happened to me uh, that I've replicated, and um, I've had a lot of success with it. 
Can you tell me an example of somebody you've pulled out of this yeah. awful life? Oh, let's see. Uh, I'll tell you about Daryl. So Daryl, it was about three years ago, he had contacted me after reading my book. And he was not happy with the way my book ended because I had left the movement and he was still in it. He had uh, just been discharged from the military uh, in basic training because he was injured. This was before, I think, going to the Iraq War. So this was a long time ago. And he'd kind of let this anger build for years and years and years. And uh, he contacted me one day, and I talked to him back and forth for a few weeks, and he told me he was in the park uh, pushing his daughter in a stroller and walking his dog, and he saw a Muslim man praying on the ground. And when he told me that all he wanted to do was go up to this man and kick him in the face while he was praying, you know, I said, Daryl, I don't know what you're doing tomorrow, but I'm flying to Buffalo. That's where he lived. And uh, I did. I flew out to Buffalo the next day because I thought— you know, he had been making progress, then all of a sudden this happened. I needed to see what was happening in his life. And one of the first questions that I asked him uh, when I sat down with him is if he had ever met a Muslim person before. And he said, no, I hate them. They're evil. Uh, they want to kill me. I want to kill them. You know, this is what this is what I was trained to do. And uh, I excused myself. I went to the restroom and uh, I pulled my phone out of my pocket and very quietly Googled the local mosque. And uh, I called. And in the he, bathroom... You didn't know anybody at the mosque? No, I had no, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't usually do it this way, but this was kind of, you know, I was in Buffalo. It was a kind of a yeah. dire situation. And I spoke to the imam who answered the phone and I said, you know, uh, excuse me, but I have kind of an odd question. I, I have a Christian man here who would really love to learn more about your religion. <laughs> do you mind if we stop by? <laughs> stop by. put it in a more extreme yeah. way. I did tell, I kind of filled him in a little bit after that. I said, you know, this isn't just a normal thing. I want to prepare wants to know more about you. He wants to kill you. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to let anything happen, but uh, we went there and, and I told Daryl we were going to lunch because if I told him we were going to the mosque, he would have said no. Uh, and then halfway to lunch, I said, well, we need to make a pit stop. And I I told him where we were going, and the man in the passenger seat, he got white, physically ill. He wanted to throw up. He was anxious. He was having a, a panic attack because we were going to the mosque. And he, I pulled over and, you know, kind of went back and forth talking it over. And, and finally, I convinced him by challenging him. I said, listen, you know, if you're a tough guy, you know, military guy, I said, the least you could do is walk through those doors with me. And I said, if you want to walk out after that, I'll go with you. And he said, okay, I'll do it. Uh, and we got there and I knocked on the door and the imam answered. And uh, he said, you're late. I said, I've only got five, 15 minutes before preparing for the prayer service. And I said, well, take it. Uh, two and a half hours later, <laughs> sitting around a table, you know, talking, uh, he had given up his prayer service to give it to the other imam to do. Uh, and, you know, we were crying and hugging each other and, and very oddly bonding over Chuck Norris, who... What? Yes. How did who, that happen? Uh, you know, the, the imam was a massive Chuck Norris fan. It turned out that Daryl was a big Chuck Norris fan, and they just started <laughs> bonding over Chuck Norris. I didn't have to do anything. Chuck did it all. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I, I'm really happy to report that years later, there's really not a Friday you can, uh, you know, drive down their neighborhood and not see them eating falafel together because they're friends. And they, you know, Daryl will go and he's still a Christian, but he goes and he sets up, you know, chairs when they need help and things like that. And, you know, that's the kind of connection I think that people are afraid of because we fear what we don't understand. And uh, we need a, to do a whole lot of understanding right now and a whole lot of listening and, and stop talking, I think. This is um, so 
timely, I think. And I, I mean, you you said we need to do more listening now, and you you're you're really saying how timely this is. We're so divided in our country that people sit down to yeah. a holiday meal together, mm. and they can't talk sometimes, or right. they talk, and, and within a minute, they're screaming at each other. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, a couple things. We need to listen, because listening is, is an important part of communication. People forget about that. They think it's all about talking, mm -hmm. uh, but we have to listen, um, and I think we have to we have to stop thinking that everybody who has a differing opinion than us is is a nazi or you know a, you know an awful white supremacist because most are not i can tell you um and i think having been one having having been one yeah. having an, uh, an a, un disagreeable opinion of being a nazi that's right i'm a pretty good judge of who is a nazi and who isn't these days <laughs> yeah. unfortunately but you know i think that this whole this whole idea that we're treating people with a differing opinion as the enemy is wrong because that is what, you know, positive conflict is about. Now, if you're saying, uh, you know, I want to kill Jews or I want to kill black, that's different. I mean, that's that's not a differing opinion. That's just flat out wrong. And I think we still have to be able to listen to them, though, not to enable what they're saying and not to support it, but to listen to what it is that led them down that path. Because I guarantee you, none of them, you know, were born, came out of the maternity ward, you know, wrapped in a swastika flag. Maybe some did. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But those people still, you know, had to learn it. I think yeah. they still had yeah. to be taught how to hate. What about someone who says, and maybe not recognizing his or her own obstinate mm -hmm. nature, mm -hmm. who says, I'm willing to listen to them, but they go right to their string of lies. And you might hear this from either yeah. side of the political spectrum now. Yeah. Well, I think things take time. I think that, you know, we can't expect, you know, to have one conversation with somebody and, and they're going to change about everything. But I think that if we continue to have these connective moments, these, you know, these really um, important uh, instances of understanding and empathy, over time, you'll see that people talk less and less about what they think they need to say and we'll talk more about what they want to say. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that what we're hearing now with all the polarization happening in America is, is nobody's listening, everybody's talking. And we're not, we're not filtering out all the noise to find out what America's potholes are. The leadership of the the various leaders of the neo-Nazi movement, mm -hmm. and there are there hundreds or thousands. I, I would say, as far as adherents, probably in the tens of thousands in the U.S. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're talking about Europe, it's much larger. I think. So, do they get a little upset that they know you're chipping away at their membership? Well, I, you know, if I checked my phone right now, I, I could probably show you how upset that they are that I'm chipping away at their membership because there'll be threats. There'll be death threats. Um, you know, they're not happy because I, I am one of the only people on earth who has this perspective of having been one of them, mm -hmm. but also having seen the other side and being able to speak about both. And um, I think for them, the biggest thing that they fear is truth. Because everything that they do is based on lies. It's based on conspiracy theories. It's based on the belief that they're better than somebody else. Uh, it's based on their, you know, idea that they should, you know, rule the earth as the dominant species or whatever they want to call it. 
And they're all lies. I mean, so the biggest threat to them, the biggest ammunition that I have is truth. Uh, and, uh, and I do that every time I speak about this, just like I'm speaking to you right now. This is, this is probably the fastest growing social movement I've ever seen in mm. my lifetime. I wonder about this. You're working one person at a time. The guy who recruited you was working one person at a time. Right. Is that how we got to tens of thousands of neo-Nazis? Or is there some attraction to the movement itself? That's a really interesting question. So when I was involved, it was pre-internet. Everything was face-to-face. Everything was about a pamphlet or a book or going to a meeting. That's very rarely the case today. What we have now is, uh, you know, we have the internet. Which, so you can get a one-to-one relationship over the internet. With many, many people at once. Uh-huh. So a propaganda piece, uh, you know, can affect 10,000 people or yeah. millions of people. And then you can capture them in chat rooms and really right. work them one-to-one. That's right. And that's what they've done. And what they've started to do is something that I think is really the most disturbing thing I've seen this movement do is they're starting to target people in um, in really safe places on the internet, or at least they were traditionally safe. Things like um, autism chat rooms mm. uh, and forums, gaming forums, where they know, you know, a high percentage of people there might be marginalized in real life. They may not have strong relationships with peers. They may be lonely. They may, uh, you know, be looking to be a part of something because nobody's ever given them that chance. They're marginalized. So they go to these places and they promise them paradise. And that sounds familiar because mm. all extremist groups do. And they say, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So they're, they are specifically targeting people that they know might want to join a community, might want a sense of, you know, uh, powerfulness after having come from powerlessness. And that's how they enable people to join. Well, we're running out of time, but I must say it's been, it, it really has been inspiring to talk to you and very eye-opening. Can I tell you a story? Yeah. And I'm sure you get this all the time, and and I, you know, just a small fanboy moment. Growing up, from as long as I can remember, uh, even before I was recruited at 14 years old, I would sit and I would watch MASH. And I think it was because when I would watch, it would mirror my family. Here you have in MASH, you know, the 4077, who's this dysfunctional, loving family. And that was my family. And being so insulated and in a bubble growing up, that, you know, I would put myself in the television and I would be in those scenes. And I think that's why I love television and I produce now is because of MASH. Mm. And I have to say that still to this day, when I, when I'm sick, when I'm having a bad day, I go to my TV and I search for MASH and I can always find it and it always makes me feel better. Well, thank you to, to take it away from me or my involvement in it. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I hear in what you're saying that it kind of validates the idea that if you are involved in fictional characters who are actually feeling emotional, authentic emotions toward one another, yeah. that that can increase your own sense of empathy. You can be more aware of what other people are going through. Yeah. And, to, and when that happens... I think it's been shown that your own sense of being aware of how you feel about things comes more to the surface. You're more able to be honest with yourself about how you feel. Possibly the look in that kid's eye that night Mm. not only registered on you, but you knew it was registering on you because the 
human contact had brought it to the surface. Let me ask you seven quick questions, if you're willing. Yeah. Seven quick answers. Sure. And they're all in some way or other about communication. Okay. What do you wish you really understood? Myself. Ooh, nobody ever said that. What do you wish other people understood about you? Uh, that I might look scary, but I'm not. <laughs> you haven't I look like a bulldog. You haven't looked scary yet today. I mean, <laughs> this is the old days. What's the strangest question someone has ever asked you? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I have a strange question question that somebody's asked me, but I can tell you that young people ask better questions than older people. When I speak to high schools or even, you know, middle schools, they will ask the deepest questions, whereas the adults, you know, don't. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. These are supposed to be quick questions, but what's an example of that? Well, I've never had an adult stand up and say, you know, my friend, I think he's a white supremacist. What can I do to help him or her? Mm -hmm. But young people do will stand up in front of a whole school and say, I'm really concerned about somebody I care about and I don't want him to go down that road. What can I say? What can I do? Great. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh... (laughs) Stop listening, I think, and just... uh, What do you do, something else? You take out your cell phone? What do you do? (laughs) Stop a... You know, I think... That's a really hard... That's the hardest question I think I've ever got. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm an introvert, so I usually just go run and hide somewhere (laughs) when somebody starts talking. Okay, next question. Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Hmm. I think the people who willingly and knowingly manipulate other people, uh, not because they believe in something, but because they want to control people. I would still have empathy for them, but I would find it very, very difficult to do that. Mm. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? Well, I was going to say, isn't there an Uber for that? that can I just <laughs> so dial you, somebody up? I think you're the first person who's picked carrier pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I do believe in just being honest with people. Yeah. Uh, so I think I would just tell them outright. Yeah, you seem, that seems to be your life now, is talking straight stuff to people. I try. I'm not perfect. Okay, last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship Oh, I think that hmm, I would find it very hard to end a friendship, I think, you know, especially because my profession is to make friends with really bad people. So it, you'd have to do a lot to to push me away. But I would I would say um, not ever recognizing your own vulnerabilities, hmm. not being able to do that. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you, Alan. It's been great. It's my pleasure. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Christian Picciolini floored me with this conversation. He's been through so much in his life, and he's managed to turn bitterness and rage into a life that's positive and helpful. You can learn more about Christian in his new book, White American Youth. 
my descent into America's most violent hate movement, and how I got out. And try to see his emotionally riveting documentary, Breaking Hate, which aired on MSNBC not long ago. And you can find details about Christian's book, his documentary, and all his other projects at ChristianPicciolini.com. Picciolini is P-I-C-C-I-O-L-I-N-I. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Bill Bradley. Former Senator Bill Bradley really knows how to connect with people and remembers a time when people were able to connect across the divide of left and right. It's the, key, the key is curiosity, curiosity about life, curiosity about the person you're interacting with, curiosity about the meaning of life. Bill Bradley is next on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.